Welcome to this podcast from the Bay Church. This is a message from historian and revivalist Ray Hughes, who blessed us over three days with his teaching. If this teaching impacts you, please consider supporting Ray's ministry at www.rayhughes.org forward slash giving. I want to start by saying um, England needs to change. Okay, now let's go eat. (laughs) We already knew that, right? Now, England needs to change. Uh, America needs to change. Um, Saudi Arabia needs to change. Uh, The the world needs to experience God. It really does. And the thing is, is we will never change culture by becoming like the culture. And we will never change the church by becoming like the church. And we realize that the, that the world needs an encounter with God. And many times we forget that every time that we have an encounter with God, we become an encounter with God. So if we've experienced defining moments in the presence of the Lord, if you've experienced a defining moment in, in, God, in the Lord, you now carry defining moments. And there's one um, part of the arsenal of God that we have that sometimes we, f- we fail to see. I believe if, the, if we can change the way the church understands worship and music, we can change the way the world encounters God. And, uh, and, and you know something? That's not just a good point or a good preaching point. God's looking for a people that he can interact with to the point that nations encounter him. I mean, he's he's looking for those that are carrying the song and and carrying the song that not just reflects and reminds us of who God is, but a, a song in our lives that reveal the nature of God. And that and that's different than just a testimony. You know, you know about, and as powerful as they can be, uh, somehow or another, the Lord's calling us to a different place now. He's calling us to a place to, of revealing His His nature and character. Now, if if you want to open your iPhones, <laughs> I, I I wrote something down here so that I want to make sure I get said. God is calling a prophetic generation, and remember. I gave the definition of the prophetic last night, and, uh, and it's not just as in foretelling, but as in forthtelling is too, but there's also something about the, uh, when, when we really speak the Word of God, we're activating uh, revelation, revelatory power to perform His Word. So the performance of His Word needs to be connected to the things that we say. Because if God has given us a word, if it's a word from God, when we set that word in motion, whatever stands in resistance to that word will, will change. Because remember the example I was talking about last night, how the earth was there, but it was without form and it was void and nothing going on. But then when the intent of God was released by the sound of His voice, and He sung into a millisecond, a millisecond <laughs> He sung into a millisecond all the frequencies in the sound spectrum that carried the truth of who he was. And whatever was in front of him had to come into agreement with, or into what the word calls symphonio, 
where two or more agree. It's the word symphonio, as in symphony, an agreement. When he spoke, everything that was within the sound of his voice began to tremble at the revealed nature of God. Now, if that's what the Word of God is, I think when we speak the Word of God, when we release the Word of God, uh, and, and we all know the word words uh, is, um, is rhema. Do we? Yeah. Okay. And then there's another word, logos. We, we know that rhema is the quickened word, and logos is, and they told us in the 80s that it was the written word, but they were wrong. A publishing company was formed around the word logos. But the word logos is something sounded, something uttered, something spoken, something declared. There's actually a setting in motion. The purposes of God are being set in motion when the word of God is spoken. That's one of the reasons the prophetic carries the weightiness that it does. So, but God is calling a prophetic generation now to a place called Whitley Bay. If we're, if we're never going to personalize this and we're going to put it out there in preachy, fluffy world, we're going to just keep on doing religious stuff. You know, we're going to be another generation that's trying to figure out how to make something work. When in fact, that's not who, that's not who we are we're created or called to be. So God is calling a prophetic generation to Whitley Bay and, this, and, the, and the surrounding area. God is wanting to renew, rebuild, repair, and restore some things that He set in motion in Newcastle generations ago. And He's waiting for a people that will step up and hear the sound of His voice that's in the wind, come into symphonio agreement with it, and we're going to hear from heaven. And according to the Word, when we hear from heaven, nothing is going to stay the same. Nothing stays the same when heaven truly speaks. He there, he's calling a prophetic generation to move in fresh expressions of the kingdom. And he is calling writers and poets and storytellers and songwriters and musicians and novelists and screenwriters and artists and dancers. He's calling a generation to find their destiny in him and express his values for creativity through their kingdom expression. So this, this time of gathering right now is basically is to invite and to inspire innovators, not, not emulators. A lot of, see, most, much of the time we spend our life in the church emulating what the world is doing so that we can be culturally relevant. And emulators that emulate, then emulators wind up emulating the emulators that are emulating the emulators, and pretty soon we've become imposters and we're no longer innovators. And God is looking for a people that's moving on the cutting edge of what He's declaring in the heaven realm, and step out in such a way that Renaissance can come. And, 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 and that, that's, that's an amazing thing when you think about it. God's looking for Renaissance thinking people that will, and Renaissance doesn't happen until brilliant young thinkers stop thinking and go ahead and do the unthinkable. And I believe God has a grace right now that He wants to reveal to heaven that causes us to walk in that kind of a truth carrying encounter. And what is this word grace? 
I've al I already messed with the word word there for a second, so let's mess with grace a bit. It's not about unmerited favor. It can be unmerited favor, but a real definition of grace is a divine infusion of God's enablement into your life to see to it that you fulfill God's purpose for your creation and all the devils in hell, no enemy of your life can keep you from fulfilling that because you're not embracing grace with a striving mentality. You're embracing grace because the ones who strive to, the striving thing is born out of an orphan heart. You're, you're sons and daughters. And uh, being sons and daughters, we have access to a divine infusion of God's enablement to cause us to be able to perform His Word in such a way that all of our enemies have to yield uh, to what you're carrying. Which, what are you carrying? What was David carrying? Remember the day when he, he stepped out of the crowd? When he stepped out of the, when David stepped out of the crowd, everybody had an opinion. But one guy had a rock. Right? So everybody in that picture, they had an opinion and had, a, had something. Well, we know what you're about. You remember that? You, know, you ever notice, notice the ones that were the, the ridiculers? They were his family. They were the brothers. And notice what happens a lot of times when you step out uh, into what you're created to do. When you begin to step out into that new place, uh, you, uh, people will, will begin to accuse you of the things that they're guilty in their heart of. Yes. Yes. See, that was not David's issues on that day. David had a very different idea than everybody else because he was not moving in the natural ideal world. Okay? Let me finish this and then, then I'll finish that. Uh, I, I do three things, you know, I, I, I've been uh, diagnosed with OCD and, and what's the other one, ADD, both, which means, which means that you, uh, everything has to be perfect, but just not very long, you know. <laughs> <Just so>. <laughs> so so I, I preach six sermons at the same time is what I do. Yeah, no sense in sticking to one when you got all the access to all those others. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and it's somehow um, uh, most of us, you know, we function in our life with like 27 apps open all at the same time. We're like a computer with all the apps open at the same time, and you just reach over and grab one, and and when you never mind. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes innovation. A true innovation is nothing more than revisiting and redefining old disciplines. So sometimes that involves restating the words of God in such a way that they become a new sound and a new song and a new language in a new generation. Now, what, what I want to share with you tonight, I'm, we're going to start in, in Psalm 33, and, and, and God only knows where we're going to wind up. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to preach some craziness tonight. Because my my wife's not here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We 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 went to Linda's farm today, and uh, man, we just uh, and uh, it was it was it was cold. 
we hadn't, hadn't got used to your weather over here yet. There's quite a few things over here we ain't got used to. One is the weather, and and y'all got the, y'all got the uh, the most amazing children on earth. It, uh, we I, we were at Linda's farm today. The wind was blowing. It was cold. We're wrapped up in sweaters and scarves and all this stuff walking around out there. And here comes all these little children eating ice cream. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a hearty crowd, I'll tell you. <laughs> and uh, we had a great time though. Lynn and Amy took us took us up there and and uh, and, and and walked us. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, <clears throat> <laughs> But we did. We had, we had a great had a uh, a great time. Now, um, uh, let, let me let me show you how how God uses the, the sound, the song, the language, and the voice to awaken a generation. And you don't always know when it, you don't always know when it's happening. Uh, uh, but I'll give you an example. There was a there was a fellow one time back in the 1800s, a young man here in, here in England. He was walking down the road on a Wednesday night, and while he was walking along the road, he was about 15 years old, and he realized that, man, the temperature is dropping. It's turning cold, it, like it did today. I mean, it, it, it just all of a sudden, it would just drop, you know, and you did, I was standing there, I had goosebumps on my back you could hang a hat on, you know. <laughs> and do y'all have goosebumps over here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if not, uh, you, you do now, because I brought some today. You know, I and, <clears throat> but... He's walking down the road, and all of a sudden the temperature starts dropping. In a few minutes it starts snowing, and he's realizing, wait a minute, this is like a blizzard is coming here suddenly. And he realized that he could, he could get in. And now, after a few minutes, I mean, there, there, there's snowflakes big as tater chips fall, you know, like crisps fall. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and he realizes he could get in, in, in trouble out here. And, but right up the road he sees... This old church with a, a, a light in the window, like an oil lantern in the window. And he thinks, well, that's where I'll find safety, you know. And so he goes. By now the snow's getting deeper and deeper. And by the time he gets there, walks in this old primitive Methodist church. And, just, and it's a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And there's like, like four old women in there praying, you know. And usually in prayer meeting, it's usually old people and their parents, you know, that show up in there. Like. And so... Go, goes into this thing in just a few minutes, they begin to pray for this young man. He has an encounter with God. He get, really got touched to the Lord. And uh, so after it's all over, you know, he goes back and tells folks at home what, what God had done for. You know, Friday night, you need to tell that story at such and such. And they, there's this home meeting, and he goes there and tells the story. And uh, well, you know, that was amazing. Look what God has done. And this. He says, you need to go to such and such on Wednesday and tell them. And pretty soon, it was like three nights a week or three days a week, he found himself somewhere just telling the story of what God had done. And uh, in, in no time, he was asked, in just, just a short time, he was asked to go and speak in uh, London at a church. And sure enough, he, he went and spoke in this church in London. You probably know, know who I'm talking about. But he goes and he speaks in this church, and they ask him to become the pastor. Now he's like 18, 19 years old. They ask him to become the, ch- uh, the pastor. And this young man's name was Charles Spurgeon. And he's now 18 or 19 years old. He takes his pastorate in a, in, a, in a really hard, rough area of London that had, you know, really experienced a lot of uh, 
harsh crime, this kind of thing. And the old church was kind of dilapidating. And, 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 but he, he took it. And, uh, and what was the key in this young man's life? The key was, is he, he, he awakened people to the wonder and the beauty of who God was. And because, because he spoke, because God had done something so beautiful in his life, he could never speak of God without the beauty and the power and the awe being heard in his words. And it was truly, true, authentic poetry. And he became known as the Prince of Preachers because of the way that he would paint the pictures and the images of the beauty and the wonder of God. Because what had happened, his encounter would become their encounter. And that's why he became the, the, uh, the Prince of Preachers. And in no time that church went to a thousand in an area that you couldn't even build a church in. Then all of a sudden 2,000, 3,000. And now he's like 22 years old and they're running five and 6,000. The queen would actually go in costume or in disguise to all of the church services. They would sneak her in so she would just be in the presence. She had to be in the presence of the words of Charles Spurgeon. And she would sneak in and hear the message. And, and, uh, but, and, but the way he communicated his encounter was so awe-inspiring that people flocked to hear his word. And he would say things like, I have learned to kiss the waves that have slammed me into the rock of ages. <laughs> well, you, you know, you, you could just said, well, I've been through some stuff, you know. <laughs> but, but the Lord help me, you know. But no, I have learned to kiss the waves. And, and, and you know, people would sit for an hour or two at a time. They said he had this incredible focus. And, and the, out of the spontaneity of the beauty of who God was in his life, he would speak. And they had people like lined up capturing every word that he would speak. And the next day it would go into publishing. Like some of you are familiar with things like the sword and the trowel. And, all this. and until this day, Charles Spurgeon is the most published writer in the history of publishing. More, more because everything he spoke, they, they captured it. It was his heart for the next gener generation to hear of the beauty rather than just the liturgy and just the, the, all the pomp and circumstance that church had become. But here was one that authentically had experienced God and he spoke out of that experience. And he, and he was 22 years old and there were thousands of people there and something happened that changed everything for him. And what one day when he got up to preach, there was in the balcony, the place is full, some knucklehead up in the balcony somewhere hollered, fire! And when they did, it created a stampede and, and uh, dozens of people were horribly injured. But six people, I think it was, died in the stampede of people trying to get out and there was no fire. And for some reason, from that day forward, every time that he would stand up to preach, he would remember the horrors of what had happened that night. And he dealt with depression for the rest of his life, though he was the most powerful preacher in all of England. Because when he would step up to focus, he would have to fight through the trauma of what he remembered. When he stepped into the pulpit, he never did it without the thought of that moment. And of course, he learned to rise above it, rise above that, 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 that trauma. But you know, he was asked to speak at the Crystal Palace in London. That's 24,000 people. 
And here this young preacher, everything, he was so intimidated by that. How in the world would my voice even carry 24,000 people? He, it was really intimidating for him. So he asked if he could go over during the middle of the week to just go over there and basically just see if his voice could carry the, the room. And what he was, basically a sound check is what he was doing. So he goes over for the sound check on Wednesday and he walks into, the, walks into this place and now he's just almost paralyzed by the awe of this thing. And he says, he just says, um, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he listened to his voice echo out through the room. And he started to walk away. But the back door flew open. And there was a maintenance man working in one of the halls came running down the middle aisle all the way to the front and fell on his knees and gave his heart to Jesus. Because his words were carrying more than, you know, we got to live our lives bigger than church. And that's what he was doing. And that, that truth re released into that room. And anyone within the hearing of the sound of the Word of God would suddenly be quickened. Rhema, Logos, becoming a transition to the Rhema quickened Word of God. Because the Word of God woke that guy up. He experienced the mercy and grace of God. And now a divine infusion of God's enablement to him to see to it that he'd walk out his destiny. And you know that story was never told until that guy was on his deathbed. And he told the story of, of the testimony. He gave the testimony of what had happened in his life the, the day that he heard the word of God. And there, was an, and there was another, you know, we talk about poets and artists and, and this kind of thing. There was another guy who, uh, who heard his preaching. And, and he, he, he was so moved by the beauty of Spurgeon's words that he said that because of those images, he, it, this guy got saved. He went on the mission field to become a missionary to Belgium, thinking that he could maybe in some way, you know, carry that kind of truth in his life. And he failed miserably. But in the meantime, he had become an artist. And his, his, his name was Van Gogh. And Van Gogh, his life's goal in his own heart was to paint as beautifully as Spurgeon painted the imagery and the beauty. Now, that, now that's another level stuff right there. And, and part of what I want to say is I've, I feel that there's a whole lot of another level stuff waiting in the spirit realm for this region. And, there, and, and what's happened is, let me, let me show you one, one, one more step of that. Van Gogh carried depression and despair because he was not, he didn't feel like he was an effective missionary. And he had these personal issues and overly sensitive nature and sensitivities and sensibilities that the enemy would use to speak to him to shut him down because I, I could never preach like so-and-so. I could never be like so-and-so. And he started, started measuring, you know, we start measuring our effectiveness in our life born out of what other people say and what the world. So, for example, right now, the world has told us what music is. What? What if, what if we discovered what 
music and worship is, according to the Word of God, and the wonder of God, and the beauty of God, the power of God, the Creator, rather than what the world system has created, which the whole music industry is born out of the idea of self-promotion. But the kingdom of God is one of self-denial. And so those, con those two things in conflict there cause people who are truly gifted and carrying something to always measure themselves through the identity and self-worth of those that are out there in the world getting all the stuff. And so we, feel, we always feel less than. And you know, and look what happened with Van Gogh. Van Gogh's whole thing, because of an overly sensitive and, and incredibly gifted and prophetic sensibilities that were in his life. Now he, he gave way for the enemy to move in and he heard the wrong voice for too long. And there he was, you know, he painted, painted Starry, Starry Night. And you know the story when he painted after Starry, Starry Night, he, he uh, took his life. And, um, uh, you know, I think first, help me, but I think first he, he, he even got to the point he cut his ear off, you know, maimed himself. And so it was the paint, he lived his life out in an insane asylum with the call of God on his life. Completely misunderstanding who he was. Everybody would misunderstand who, who he is. But what he was doing is he was carrying these prophetic sensitivities and sensibilities that the enemy used against him. Rather than them being the, which were his very strengths, see. And then, of course, way over a hundred, well, what was maybe a hundred years later, uh, there was another, a poet hears the story and writes the song. Starry, starry night. Remember that? You know, I could have told you, Vincent, this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. You know, that's about Vincent Van Gogh's life. And so, you, you, you know, you start seeing these, uh, the, well, let's look at it. Let's look at it in Scripture. You don't, let's look at it in the Word of God. Uh, and, uh, and I'm going to go real quickly to, to uh, uh, first uh, something. I'm going to I'm I'm show you the, a little bit of this picture from 1 Samuel. And then 1 Samuel 17 is a wonderful picture of this. 1 Samuel 17, when you get there, if, you, if you're going there with me, if you, and if you, if you don't, that's fine, because I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll pretty much go down the line with you. It says, it starts off in 1 Samuel 17, it says, in the inscription, it just says, David and Goliath. Well, we know the story of David and Goliath. We've heard it all our lives, many of us. But I want to point out a couple of things you, you may have overlooked. One is we know that the name David is beloved. And, 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 you, and we know that, the, that he created, I talked a little bit about it last night. He was this worshiper. He was a musician, overly sensitive nature, had uh, these sensibilities to hear and know and interact with the presence of God. There he was sitting out in a place that would, in, a, in a shepherd's field and began to sing the song, God inhabited his praise and set a covenantal promise in motion. And that covenantal promise was uh, that out of the son of David, out of the line of David, there would be a redeemer, a savior that would be born. And what was he gonna redeem? He's gonna rightly relate all of humanity to a right relationship with the Father as worshipers. Now that's amazing. And you got one kid out here worshiping to the point that his song was sustaining promise. And then a, over a thousand years later in that same shepherd's field in a manger right there is where 
a sound came from heaven and he was born. Now you have 30 years pass, and this, this one who had come, he, 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 was, he was conceived in worship through the Word, and then he, he, he was, when he came into the earth, he, uh, a, in a manger, in an atmosphere where David had worshipped, the, the wise men, everybody comes, he had to be born in an atmosphere of worship. And there was all of creation, animals, trees, stars, everything was engaged in this birthing process because heaven was coming to earth. God, Emmanuel with us, is now in the earth to rightly connect. And, and remember, in that field where David was playing the shepherd's harp, he was playing actually the gut strings of the upper belly of the sheep of the sacrificial lambs is where the sound had come from. And now the sacrificial lamb comes there and awakens the song to all of humanity. It's, a, it's an incredible thing when you think of that. Thirty years later, out of nowhere, Jesus comes walking out down at the river. You remember that? And the sound comes from heaven again. And he says, you know what? This is my beloved son. Beloved is the word David. This is the son of David, in whom I'm well pleased. So all of those generations that the enemy would know that there's a spoken promise, a covenant promise had been made. I'm going to send one that will bruise the head of the enemy and, and destroy his domain, if you will, and rightly relate all. Now, that promise was made all the way back in the garden. That there's coming a time, there's coming a time that the seed of woman is going to bruise your head, Satan. Now all, generation after generation after generation, all the enemy knows, all the devil knows is, is he was able to take the crown of glory in the garden and break down worship there. And that worship relationship was lost. And, but there was a promise made. And he says, one of these days, seed of woman going to get you, dude. The seed of woman is going to bruise your head. Now all he knows is, is generation after generation, he don't know who the seed of woman is. He don't know who this head bruiser is. He don't know this redeemer, who that is. But all he knows is every generation or so, some prophetic one, some, some Samuel or some Elijah or some Elisha or some prophet would raise up an Isaiah in the middle of nowhere, some, some Joshua, and these guys would have encounters with God. That could be the head bruiser. I mean, this Samson guy, look what he did. Took the jawbone of an ass and slayed a thousand men. He could be the head bruiser. <laughs> so the enemy is living with all this paranoia, generation after generation, and all the prophecies sustained the paranoia. There's coming a Messiah. There's coming a Redeemer. Would come, and then he would wonder if this is him. And now all these thousands of years of promise set into the wind and into song and into lyric and into poetry and into sensitive ones that have interacted with God and captured the language of heaven, singing it, playing it, writing it, painting it, all of these poets. And, and the word poet, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus was not a preacher. He never preached a sermon in his life. Now there's a Greek concept around the Sermon of the Mount, he didn't, but he, he didn't preach a sermon in his life. Matter of fact, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, for example, the woman at the well. You ever, have you ever really looked at the story of the woman at the well? Uh, it was a, it was just a, he was a storyteller. 
He was an inspired storyteller is who Jesus was. That's why when the Pharisees and religious folks would try to corner him on some theological thing, and he'd just say, well, uh, consider the lilies. <laughs> and gone. He, he might say, you know, foxes have their holes. Birds have their nests. I'll get back with you on that. And he, didn't, he didn't fall into debating the Word of God and who, who got the, who's got the up and up on this biblical concepts. He wasn't about concepts. He was about speaking life. He was about awakening all of humanity to see God in His wonder and His beauty. And he carried words of truth. He was Word of truth. And, and when, he, uh, when, when you see Him there with the, with the woman at the well, and, and remember, now, He was a misfit. He didn't fit in this world. But that day when He walked down there and He, and, uh, and he said, Hey, let me tell you who he is. Nobody's figured out who he is. Let me tell you who he is. He's, this is my beloved son, son of David, in whom I'm well pleased. And, and so you see that covenantal connection, and, and, and now the enemy hears this. Oh, wait a minute, I've been fooled before. I thought it was Joshua. I thought it was Gideon. I thought it was so. No, I've been fooled before. Now this. But so what does he say? When God says, This is my beloved, when God says who you are, what's the next voice you hear? If thou be the Son. You know, always challenge the last thing that God awakened in you. And the prophetic is never about telling you what to do, the prophetic is about awakening who you are. And if we could get past that, that fivefold governmental structured kind of thinking around that. Is there fivefold government? Yes. Let's, let's don't discount that. But that will never truly awaken who you are. The Word of God, Word of Truth, prophetic word, quickening. You know, and it can happen on a snowy night somewhere in a primitive Methodist church where there's four old women praying. You know, it can, ha it can happen on, when you look out across the waves coming in here and they awaken and speak something to you because all of creation is declaring His glory. It, it can happen when you touch the strings of a guitar and the sound and the tones and the textures of that sound remind you in your spirit that you were created to worship to a tone and to a sound and to the voice of the Lord. And that agreement that can happen when you interact with God, that's what creates the language that we live life by. And that's what Jesus did. He says, if thou be the Son of God, and then he started challenging what God had said. Why was it such a big challenge? Because he was the one that was about to redeem and restore and renew worship in the earth. But see, all the way back in the beginning, what was, uh, there were three archangels in heaven. One was Michael the warrior, Gabriel the messenger, and who was the third one? Lucifer, or Satan, the, the worship leader. But he didn't have to sit down to a piano to lead worship. Because within his very being was created. Within, with, with the, those instruments were within, his, within him. He didn't have to sit down to a piano to lead worship. He was a piano. He didn't have to pick up a guitar to lead worship. He was a guitar. And his name was the anointed cherub that covereth the throne of God. But now, one day the anointed cherub that covereth the throne realizes how beautiful and gifted he is. And, and he's cast down, leaves the throne uncovered. Right? But basically God says, no biggie. 
I'll create a people in the earth on a bay in the northeast part of England, and I will inhabit the praises of my people. And because they will create a covering, a habitation, and the sound, of, and a sound of redemption that will come flowing out of their lives and out of their lyric. And, and that's what the blood of Jesus was about. Is, you, know, you know, the Bible says that life is in the blood. God is light. And that, did you know that the blood that flows in your veins is very, very, carry the very same properties as light? That's one of the reasons why when we get to heaven one day we'll be lightified. We're going to be transformed and lightified, glorified. But anyway, that's a, that's a kind of a sciencey kind of thing. But, but, and, that, and that's all, also one of the reasons that the sound of the voice of the Lord carries, the sound of, the, of, a, of a prophetic release is what carries healing. You know, uh, the, the blood is what, uh, is what heals. And when we've been transformed by the blood, we're a part of that transformation process that carried the sound now. Now, John Newton was pretty right. We talk about a prophetic song. Amazing grace, divine infusion of God's enablement. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Think about that just a sec. This, and what is this word sound? It's born out of the whole concept of sun, sonic. See, sonic is sound, sun. So the sound of God's heart, this is my beloved sound of David standing, manifesting in your very presence. That's what was going, that's why all of, all of hell, suddenly the devil stepped up and said, wait a minute, this guy here is different. I better mess with him right now. Let me go ahead and push some buttons to press him into a destiny. This is the one with destiny. So I'm going to press some buttons that will push him into a destiny according to my will and my timing and my purpose. That's what the temptation was all about. And when you, uh, uh, if, if, if the word, you know what the word tempted means? It means tempted. <laughs> it means he had to, he was actually tempted. He had to consider what was being proposed to him. If it, otherwise it wouldn't be temptation. And what was the temptation? Well, the temptation is this. If thou be the Son of God, let me tell you what, if you really are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Well, Jesus can, in other words, alter matter. We know Jesus can alter matter. He can, he can alter matter. He, like I said last night, He can walk up to that wall, which is matter sitting there vibrating at a particular frequency, come into agreement with that frequency, and walk through the wall. So He can change the stone to bread, Not, no biggie. No, and he's, but he didn't do it according to, I'm not doing it according to your word. And so he didn't. Oh, and, and then, he, then what's the next one? He said, well, he took him up to a high place. And he said, defy gravity. If you defy gravity, we'll know who you are. Jesus could have just said, I already know who I am. You heard what he said. <laughs> this is my beloved son. I'm the Redeemer. One, come to redeem and restore right relationship of every tribe, tongue, people in the earth, rightly related to the Father as worshipers. That's who I am. He didn't have to say all that, though. The enemy is saying, if thou be the Son of God, if you'll come up here and defy gravity, now you won't have to go through death, burial, resurrection, rejection of men, and cross, and tomb, and all that stuff. You don't have to do that. You just, just, just jump off of here. Now, now here's, the, here's the power of what was going on in that moment. 
In that very moment, all the angels in heaven are sitting holding their breath in heaven as Jesus is being tempted. Because if he says the wrong thing, they are dethroned eternally. And the one-third that fell, they're on the And God is dethroned eternally. And now Lucifer has won. And wow. Now the weightiness of temptation. And Jesus is tempted. Otherwise it's worthless. And this and here's a guy trying to get him to walk in presumption and misunderstand who he is and take his definition of who he is. And see, that very identity crisis is the very thing that is holding the throats of creatives and musicians all over the earth today because the world has determined this is how you gain identity and this is how you gain this and this is how you do that. And the world is telling us, and I'm here to tell you, if we can change the way the church understands worship and music and presence, we'll change the way the world encounters God. That day the world was encountering God in ways it had never been encountered. Wait a minute. He didn't jump. Oh, listen, if you jump, I'll give you all the kings. This is what you get. All you got to do, according to my word, one time, the sound of my voice, if you yield to it one time, that's all. You see, that? You see the weightiness of that. And of course we know he can defy gravity, but he didn't. We know that Jesus can walk up to, to the Sea of Galilee, come into agreement with the vibration of the frequency of the water, change the surface tension with his will, and walk on top of water. He could have done that. And we know that he could, because he'd already walked on water. Defying gravity is not a big deal, but I'm not doing it according to your word. And then he gets it. Okay, I understand. Hey, all you got, listen. Let's don't do this cross tomb, kill and die and stuff. I'll give you everything you've come for. Just one thing. I just need one thing. Just worship me just, just a little. If you worship me, you get everything. And that's when Jesus, and so now, and that's when Jesus established the priority for every life in this room. And all, every life in the world. He said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou serve. That means worship first, service second. So the overflow of your worship is what empowers you to fulfill your destiny by the grace and divine infusion of God's enablement to get it done. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound, the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, then from that very moment, here comes all these angels sweeping into that atmosphere and begin to minister. Power, glory, honor, strength. Heaven began to respond. And when heaven began to respond, he walked right out of that while God, uh, the angels of heaven are inhaling. And it, nothing, it, it, it wasn't a loss. Jesus walked right out of that atmosphere and began to do and to teach and to release signs and wonders and miracles. First thing he did is walk down to the creek and said, come on, boys. I know you throw, you cast the nets here. But uh, you just throw down your nets and follow me. I'll make you become. Who was he talking to? I'll make you become fishers of men. Now, he wasn't if, it, if it had been building a house, it ain't about the fishing. He would have said, throw down your hammers and follow me. I'll make you builders of men. But, <laughs> but what he was doing there is he, he identified, there are ca I need some casters. 
and he walked right on down the creek a little farther. There's two more of them down. It didn't say they were casting. Remember what it said? They were mending their nets. So Jesus is looking for casters and menders. And if he on that day recruits casters and menders, now we can build a kingdom. And it comes with signs and wonders and miracles and so on. Why was that so important that he find those guys? I mean, this is Jesus. He can do whatever he wants to. Well, it was important because of this principle. Those guys that were standing down there casting their nets at one time in their childhood had been had set in a rabbinical school learning the Word of God. And they're sitting there learning the Word of God and, and, and like it was, for example, in the days of David. When, they were, when the young men would come in and learn the Word of God every day, the way it worked was, is up on, up on the, uh, a, a board on the wall, there, uh, they, the rabbi would write the Word of God. And all the young students would come in and, and, and mother, mother rabbi, the night before, would take these tablets, like a slate, and would cover them with a thin coat of honey. And on that thin coat of honey, then the young students would come in and find that sitting on their desk, and they would look at the Word of God on the wall, and they would take the stick and write the Word of God. And the Word is honey to my lips. It's life ever. So they learn to associate the taste of honey with the Word of God. It's sweet under my lips. Now, and, the, and why, why was it honey? Because no bacteria can live in honey. It's the purest food, and it only produces life. Honey does. And so when you are tasting that honey, why, why, why was that whole, how does honey do that? Well, because God had already set a bunch of things in order, spirit, soul, and body to experience the Word. And so, because here, no, no sickness, no bacteria can live in honey. Why? Not because of the worker bee, and not because of the drone, and not because of the queen bee. It was because there was a very little known bee that is called the fanner bee, that just suspends in midair inside the cone and, and just does this all the time. <laughs> just sustained and suspended in midair. Just doing that. Keeping the wind and the atmosphere so clean and pure that no bacteria can come into the hive because she's in there intercessing. She's an, inter she's an intercessor. And by being suspended and sustained in this, in this a posture of prayer in response, she's doing what she was created to do. But what she's doing is she's keeping the word pure. That every, so then what, what, what these other bees, they'll go out and grab the nectar from the flower that God has caused this very timing for it to produce something that they can grasp. And then they make a beeline <laughs> straight for the hive and bring creation into an atmosphere of intercession. And then these students would sit down, and, and when the David did that, he said, Oh, man, Lord, thy word is honey to my lips. And he, then he would write a song. So you see these processes that God can use in all of our lives just 
I don't know. What's your song? What's your song? What is the creative expression? What is the response to Creator through His creation? We don't, you know, I, I guarantee if we start going around the room right now, we have hours and hours and hours of miracles, signs and wonders of the things that have happened in our past that were born out of some little ridiculous something or just one encounter, one word. Or, or, you know, and so Jesus walks down there, and who does He find? He finds all of these young guys down there fishing. You know how they wound up there? It's because one day the rabbi walked in, and rabbi would say, okay, well today is cut day. So all of you that have been here learning the Word of God and so on, I just want to tell you that, uh, uh, well, Paul, sorry man, you don't have what it takes. <laughs> You're out of here. Uh, I'll tell you what now, uh, uh, you know, Amy, uh, you, okay. And so and so, and you're, and then nope, you're out of here, you're out of here, you're in, and this thing would happen. Now, if you didn't make it, you know what you do? You go be about your father's business. So now your father's business was a fisherman. So you're going to spend the rest of your life down there fishing when there's a seed dream somewhere hidden in your heart, and you've just been waiting for one prophetic word. One word that you could grasp a hold of. And what Jesus did is he walked down there and said, okay, you may never have a Christian television show. You may never have a book. You may never have a record deal. You may never have, you may never, all the, whatever those images are that the world has told you that that's identity and self-worth built. You may not be, but you know what, Paul? Follow me, man. I'm going to make you become every dream that's ever been in you. I'll make you become exactly what God has created you to be. And so they, on that day, what did they do? They threw down their nets. Did they go back to rabbinical school? No. Those religious systems still don't know what to do with those guys. They're still trying to figure out what happened with these plain, ordinary people that turned the world upside down because they heard a word and responded to the, to the song that was already laying within them. And they walked through their confused seasons and so on. And then, you know, one day, they're all gone. They're all dead. There was one guy left. And he had just become the town idiot. He was, y'all have town idiots over here? Yeah. You know, a lot of times you just, like I got a lot of cousins that people say, you know, they don't know much. I got cousins that don't even suspect anything. <laughs> they, you know, they just live kind of on a different plane, you know, just, but, and, and that's, and, but this old, this old guy had, was, uh, well, you know, everybody just wanted to get rid of him. You know, he was kind of, because he's always just telling these crazy stories. And the crazy stories would be like, he become a town nuisance because he was saying things like, oh, I was there when Jesus healed the blind man. I was there. Yeah, I want to tell you, he spit on the ground is what he did. And he would, he would tell these crazy stories. And uh, he was like a, a Shanakee, if you will, in the Irish, Irish Shanakee. Those old storytellers just, talk, just tell these crazy stories out of their head and you don't know if they're true or not. And you sit there and listen to them for hours, and I, and I love to hear them. You know, I just say, I don't care if it's true or not. Go ahead and tell it. If it's a lie anyway. <laughs> it, it blesses me. I, so, but this guy, nobody knew if he was telling the truth or not. But he, because he would tell about the day Jesus walked on the water. 
I was there. In the days Jesus did so and so. And so all the smart people, they want him out of town. So finally they said, I'll tell you what, let's take this idiot and we'll just put him out on the Isle of Patmos. We'll never hear from him again. Yeah. Put him out, Isle of Patmos. The word Patmos means the place of my killing. And we'll just take him out there and let him die in the middle of the Aegean Sea. We'll never hear this craziness again. And they put him out on the Isle of Patmos. But there he was, in the spirit. On the Lord's Day. And he heard a trumpet as of, or, or, as a, vo as of a voice behind him. And, uh, and I don't know, now, he didn't hear a trumpet, he heard a voice as of a trumpet. He heard a sound as of a trumpet. And when he turned, and, and notice it says, when he turned to see the voice. You don't see a voice, you hear a voice. Yeah, but he turned to see the voice. So, light and sound realm and spirit realm is that close to, to one another. He turns to see the voice, and when he saw the voice, remember what he said? I saw the voice, and his head and hair was white like wool, as white as any snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He was girded about with gold in his mouth. He had a two-edged sword, and his hands held seven stars. I mean, you just see the imagery. And he looks, and that's, that's, the, that's who he sees. And then he fell down, and he began to worship. Now, what I want you to see here is, is he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord had told him to write what you see. And now John could have said, you know what? I'm not a writer. I'm not an educator. I'm not a theologian. You want me to write all of the eschatology for future generations and all their end time, pre-trib, post-trib, non-trib, trib-tribs? <laughs> you know, and you, I, I'm not the person to write all this eschatology stuff. And, and the voice, I, didn't, I told you to write. Just write what you see, write. It's not about eschatology. It's not about, the book of Revelation is not about end time events. It's a revelation of Jesus. Jesus revealing himself sometimes as these, wow. Revealing himself in ways that nobody's ever seen Jesus. Sometimes it's, uh, uh, you know, so you, and he says, you're not an educator. You're not an academic. But I created you to be a writer, so you write. And that's for somebody in here. You keep arguing with yourself about, I'm not a writer. I'm not a this. I'm not a that. Well, it's, John could have said, well, uh, where would I get a publishing deal when I, you know, <laughs> how am I going to get this thing published? No, right. You know, and, and, uh, and of course, then later all the theologians and the smart people started trying to figure out how to divide the body of Christ with all these theologies and doctrines that were born out of the end time eschatology. So, you, so you know, the, the point there is, of course, I believe, you know, Jesus would have already returned if he could just figure out all the maps and charts that, that, <laughs> that, that man has put out there, you know. But <laughs> it's a revelation of Jesus. Someone having an encounter with Jesus and not limiting it to our ideas. In other words, moving in this, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. 
And, you know, there are times in history in this very land that you're living right here. There are times in history that people had encounters with God and carried outrageous apple cart upsetting kind of theologies. It wasn't about theology. I was just walking by the sea with Jesus. I was just doing this. It was real. It was, the spirit realm was far more real than the natural realm. And they carried, uh, carried truths. And, and, and that's what Jesus was doing. He was carrying presence of the Father. When, when, you, when you see that, what, what he did there, uh, you, you know, when he, he was there to reveal worship. And you see what he did there in, in, the, in John. It says, when the, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard uh, that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize his disciples. So that's a discrepancy already right there. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. I've been there many times. If you're going to, you don't have to go through Samaria. But he needed to go through Samaria. Because he did what he saw the Father do and he did what he heard the Father say. So he moved in that spirit realm place. And so he came to the city of Samaria, which is Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Please let me fix something there. No, it wasn't. It wasn't Jacob's well. It was Abraham's well. Jacob. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well and was, it's about the sixth hour. Now a woman of Samaria came to drink water and Jesus said, I'd love to have drink that water. Give me a drink. His disciples had gone away to, into the city to buy food. Then the woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew are asking a drink of me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans? And Jesus said to her, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now watch this. What's going on here is this woman comes up there like she does every day and here sets a Jewish guy, a homeless guy, just some, she don't know who he is, just some homeless guy sitting by the well. And he's one of these homeless guys, evidently, that just talks out of his head. Could you give me a drink? He don't even know I'm Samaritan. He don't know this is culturally completely wrong for him to talk to me at this well. But, you know, he's a homeless guy, and he probably walks and talks a lot anyway. And so then, and then she really knows he's crazy because he says, well, if you knew, you would give me, uh, uh, I, would, I would give you a drink, you know, this whole confusion thing happens. Because he begins to speak in prophetic and poetic metaphor. If you, if you knew who it was, you'd ask me to give you a drink. And, uh, and I would give you living water. What in the world is living water? So the homeless guy's a little off. So the woman said, sir, uh, excuse me, homeless guy, but you don't have anything to draw from, and so how are you going to give me this living water? Now, where are you going to get this living water? And, uh, and, then, and then she goes on and says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus said to her, well, but whoever drinks of this water Tradition, whoever drinks of all these old knowings that divide and destroy because of religious preference 
That's what's, that's, see this thing happening here. And whoever drinks from this water, I, sh I, I wow. Will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give in him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And she's sitting there where the everlasting God had made promises for future generations that covenant would be realized. And here's one sitting there that's never experienced covenant. And he's speaking this kind of poetic, beautiful imagery into her life. And the woman said, well, sir... Tell you what then, I'm going to call you bluff on it. Just give me a drink of this water that you're talking about and I'll never thirst again stuff. Give me a drink of this water. And Jesus said to her, well, go and call your husband. Tell him to come here. Oh, now it gets crazy. Because a woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. You ever notice when people get in the presence of Jesus, suddenly they start getting vulnerable and truthful? I don't, I, don't, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, well, you got that right. You have well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one, uh, basically he said, you've had five husbands, and the knucklehead laying at home on the couch today making you draw the water ain't doing nothing for you either, right? That means you've got six, and what you don't realize is you are in the presence of number seven. Six is the number of men. And man will never produce life. Man only produces disappointment. Man produces preaching old traditional ideas around broken covenants. Man will all, in other words, preaching personal preferences as if they're convictions of the Holy Spirit and drawing one, in, one another into bondage to theological ideas and tradition. But you're sitting in the presence of number seven, which is completion. And you're about to be completed today. That's what he was bringing to the table. And she didn't, she didn't get it. For you've had five husbands. And then the woman said to him, Well, sir, I perceive that you are a poetese, an inspired storyteller that has received the inspiration of God that the words that he carries and speaks, in other words, the songs that he sings, the art that he paints, the wonder that is lived out through his creative process of responding intuitively to what the Holy Spirit speaks to a life. I perceive that you are one of those. You are like a David, a poet, storyteller, right? One who seven times, seven, seven times a day would access the presence of God. And now here's number seven, sitting at a well that was actually sworn, God would swore by, swore by this well. And that word there, do you know what that word is? Seven. Look at all that God did with the sevens. Seven days. Uh, seven trumpets, seven sevens. Seven, seven, on down to the, the seven spirits of God. Seven, yeah, I, I've got a whole list of them here. But just, but what he was saying is, is, is I'm the covenant promise. Well, you're saying, well, I'm the one that's here to restore your song that has been lost or tradition. The bondage and the rejection of man's ideas that have brought your heart to brokenness. And that what this world has done to you is being dealt with right now. Because I'm, I'm, I, it's, it's an amazing picture when you see. And as soon as he speaks that truth that awakens her, the first thing you see, well, listen, uh, 
the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, but our fathers worshipped. He, he wasn't talking about worship. Why did suddenly she want to debate about worship? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and the Jews say Jerusalem is a place, and where we ought to worship, and so on. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain, neither on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation of the, is of the Jews, and the hour is coming, and now is. What in the world is it? If it's coming, how is it a now is? Because Jesus steps beyond the into that timeless place of presence right there. And the hour is coming now is when worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and the Father is seeking such to worship Him. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. But she had to have that encounter to awaken who she really was. And then she takes off. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. And that's when He just speaks into it and says, Here I am. He says, I who speak to you am He. So the first thing she does is she takes off and she says, tells the whole world, come and see. Come and see this man. And they do. Now, that's the way the kingdom is built. Here's the thing. We all can identify in our rejection and our identity crisis. We can identify with the woman at the well. Right? And that's the problem. Because we're not the woman at the well. We're Jesus at the well. We're never supposed to be the woman at the well. Coming back to one more day of the disappointment of what man can bring to our life. The identity crisis for us is not realizing that Jesus already paid the price for, and in, in Him we live and move and have our being. And the only hope that God has of being glorified in this earth is Christ in you. We are the Jesus at the well. And, we, and, and that's why the Lord is speaking to our lives today. You know what? We're never going to change culture by becoming like the culture. And we're never, like I said, we're never going to change the church by becoming like the church. We've got to live our lives bigger than church and take the sound of who we are and awaken worship. And that's why there's a prophetic grace being placed upon the body today. That's why there's a prophetic grace for writing and creating and the, all of those giftings that are seed dreams lying in us. Well, there's a Jesus walking by and saying, hey, you guys, throw down whatever you've become so dependent upon that it keeps you from stepping out into your new day. Because I've got a song in you. I've got life in you. I, I mean, how many of us on a snowy night can do, have one encounter with God that 200 years from now, or 100 years from now, is still carrying a truth, a prophetic, a prophetic truth. Now, I'm going to end with this. When you, when, it, when in 1 Samuel, when that word begins there, that chapter begins, it says, David, in the inscription, David and Goliath. That's the title that they placed in the Bible. David means beloved, right? We talked about it. What does Goliath mean? His name means soothsayer. Soothsayer. Hmm. David is the only guy God ever said 
that there is a man after my own heart. And I believe this Davidic heart that God's given to his people today is God said, there's a man after my own heart. You know what? I think I'm going to give it to him. Now David has God's heart. That means David has God's heart for the educational system and the governmental structure. Right? That means he had no political ambition to be a king, but God says, he's got my heart, so I'm going to give, I'm going to give an, a grace, an anointing to him to dominate the, the poetry and the writing and the dancing and the creative process of a whole generation. That's a Davidic anointing. And so God raised him up from that, but first he had to kill this giant. And the word Philistine means to roll in the dust and to wallow in self. And I'll tell you something, there's people all over this room that you've been wallowed in the dust of your own misery and insecurities for too many years. And the Philistine has been holding you captive to his words. And right there you see it, that they were gathered at a place called Sokah. The Philistines gathered there to battle. And Sokah, which belongs to Judah. Did you get that? Sokah means a place shut in and entwined. So there, there they are, shut in and entwined. You have Philistines rolling the dust, wallowing self people. They have moved into the land of Judah. And Judah means praise. So they've moved on the land that was designated and designed by God to be a place in the earth where a sound of praise would always be heard. And, and so Sokah, and they encamp between Sokah and, and Azekah and Ephes Damam. And Azekah is the tilled garden. Now let me tell you how the, how the enemy works. All throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, the enemy wouldn't just come against the people of God or attack the people of God. It said they would encamp against the people of God. And encamping against and attacking is two different things. Encampment they liable to encamp against the people of God for two years, five years, ten years, seventy years they encamped against the people of God. Which means that they'd move up and set themselves in a position that now they infiltrate and invade and bring ideas and concepts and pretty soon the people of God starts dropping their guard and no longer worshiping Him. Judah had been encamped against now to be infiltrated. And pretty soon their values change and shift. Nine times in the Old Testament, nine times, the enemy would encamp against and pretty soon worship would cease. And then God would raise up a king or someone who says, did right what was in the eyes of the Lord and after the father David. That means worship was restored. That means the song would come alive again. And now what, what was going on here when they would encamp against then they sent out this, this big giant with a big loud mouth to intimidate and put him fear, discouragement, and dismay. Why? Because his words were filling the air and writing the rules of engagement. If you send out a man and I fight, you know, you, no. He, who gave the enemy the right to write the rules of engagement? And all of Israel, all the soldiers are standing on the hill up here and nobody will fight the giant because he's too big and ugly and intimidating. They live in fear and discouragement and dismay. On this side you have, uh, on this side you have Israel, on this side I, I've stood there. On this side is Israel, on this side is the Philistines. And down in the middle stands this big giant in this holler down there 
dominating the atmosphere from fleshly Philistine stuff day after day after day, intimidation and fear, and nobody will step out. And after 40 days of that, then this kid shows up. Why did the kid show up? He was the pizza delivery guy. Because his dad said, go serve your brothers bread and cheese. That's pizza, I don't care what culture you're from. <laughs> so when the pizza guy shows up, on a menial task for his father, he hears the words of the giant for the first time. Everybody else had gotten accustomed to the words of the giant. But here's a guy that shows up that hadn't been hearing it. Why? Because he had been in a field worshiping with a kenner and a, and a, and a shepherd's pipe, a pibgorn. And there while he's worshiping, something is happening. It's because worship leads to obedience. Obedience leads to servanthood. So here he shows up to serve his brothers. Not knowing this is all going on, but when he stepped out there in servanthood, he saw what was going on, passion rose up in him. And that passion said, wait a minute, who's this guy talking about? Is he talking about my God like that? And that passion so alerted who he really was. He said, wait a minute. Now everybody else had been hearing these intimidating words. What had he been listening to? The heart of the Father in the shepherd's field. So the contrast of what they had been hearing and what he was hearing, all, passion rose up. And, then, and when passion rises, you step out into your purpose. We live in cycles and cycles of dream and disappointment. Dream and disappointment. Dream and disappointment. You ever do that? Dream and disappointment. Dream and disappointment. The only way that you can break the cycle of dream and disappointment is live from your place of passion. And David was a worshiper. And his passion awakened as soon as he heard somebody defying the name that he worshiped. You see there. And so from purpose, he took a position nobody else would take. Everybody else said, don't go down there, David. Man, that's a rocky place down there. And, and, and that big giant. And they said, you know, you know don't hit that. He's too big to hit. David said, are you kidding? He's too big to miss. <laughs> Because he don't think like they do. He thinks completely different. I can't miss a guy that big. You kidding? They said, don't go into that rocky place. That's a, what are you kidding? There's ammunition everywhere. <laughs> See, don't think like they do. And when he stepped out, the first thing he did is he reached down and he picked up five smooth, no, five smoothed stones. The stones had already been prepared and they're laying there waiting. And the provision born out of passion and purpose, will always be waiting for those that will take the lowest place of all. So when he stepped down into that low place, he picked them up. Five, and I have some from the Valley of Elah. And, they're, they're, and what he used was about that big, and it was solid flint. Flint is so dense, it's like a, almost like a bowling ball. And it is so heavy. And the, the scientists did the figuring on it, and physics... And you, you have to, he had to have a three and a half foot sling. And he wound that thing up tight enough to throw it the length of a football field. And smacked that giant square in the head and drove a bronze helmet into his head and he fell to the ground. Now when he stepped, because when you step out in purpose and passion and take a position nobody else wants, you'll find yourself prophesying the purposes of God into the thing. I want to tell you something, John. I'm going to take that big ugly head off you today. That hadn't happened yet, so that was prophecy. But there was something accompanying the prophecy. 
When he stepped down and he began to prophesy, the first thing he did is he released a new sound. For 40 days, all you'd heard is a giant's voice. Now there's a new sound. And remember how he prophesied? You come to me, you uncertain. I don't know if you realize this, but back in the day of Moses, they used flint stones to do circumcisions. And so now this flint, David basically said, you come to me, you're uncircumcised, you're about to meet your flintstone. <laughs> and what he did is when he released that flint, so with a new sound, I believe this was the beginning of rock music right here. But when he released, and he wrote songs about it for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, he wrote songs about the day he released the rock of the salvation of Israel. Because when he released that sound, released that rock, released that prophetic destiny, bang, the giant hits the ground, and every one of them standing on that hill is now released into their prophetic destiny. The ones that were paralyzed with fear and criticism. You know, because criticism will always bring barrenness to your life. Barrenness born out of criticism, they couldn't do anything because they were carrying a critical spirit, just like Michael was. You know, but, but everything changed when he released the rock. Bang, hits, hits the ground, and he goes over and lops the head off of this big old giant and takes off running down the road. And when he goes down the road, he runs into those, all those women, those intercessors and mothers and daughters and sisters praying for their husbands and their sons. Are we going to be in bondage to the Philistine? Are they going to take us into slavery? Are they going to kill us? Is it all over? The, the, they're whining and crying out to God, and they look, and here comes some redheaded kid running down the road with a head in his hand. <laughs> what in the world? And then they, when they saw that, what did they do? They said, David is, or Saul is slain as thousands, but David is 10,000. They begin to sing and dance. They, and he hadn't slain thousands. So they're prophesying too. They're prophesying. They're prophesying. Every, and everything that's happening there is a prophecy. A prophetic generation is being rightly related to the sound of who they are. And so when this, and what does he do? He passes up the gate. And he's running down the road with this big old head. And he goes all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. No, he didn't. There was no Jerusalem. He went to a Jebusite fortress that would one day become Jerusalem. But here he is carrying the head of the enemies, declaring, next. That was, what, a, what an incredible prophetic day. Because one 17-year-old kid worshiper that had fallen in love with God, playing a kinner, or a harp, it was the shepherd's harp, and the, and the shepherd's harp, the kinnor, he played four different kinds of harp, the Neville, the Lyra, the, uh, the kinnor, the Shemineth, but this harp that he was playing, it was a sound, that was the sheep gut thing, and it was for the sound of joy. We always think of David sitting out there in the middle of nowhere playing this soft, Casio charismatic, put everybody to sleep kind of music. <laughs> this thing was a percussive harp, had bone and metal and stuff hanging on this thing. So when you would strike it, it'd have a percussive rhythmical kind of a thing. And, and when he would play it, that was the instrument of joy. And then he would grab the pibgorn, the shepherd's pipe, and he would play that. And that's what, what, he, what he carried. So this harp picker steps into a war min mindset, 
not based upon might, but based upon presence. Because he had not been out there in penance, he was out there in the presence. That's why he moved in purpose. He took a position nobody else would take. He moved in prophecy. And then here comes the power, and then a whole generation begins to praise. And that's who God's looking for today. He's looking for the poets at the well. He's looking at the poets and, and where the world is telling us what everything looks like. He's looking for those that move in the supernatural born out of it, releasing destiny out of that kind of a pure heart. So I want to pray right now for every person here. This has been a, it's been a, a, a long message, and I'm sorry for that, we're, but, and we're only, but I'm only here tonight. And then I'm leaving, uh, we got a thing in the morning, but, I, I, but this is not even about us grasping some new understanding of worship, guys. You know what this is about? This is about awakening the Davids in the fields. This is about awakening the ones who've been casting nets and waiting for Jesus to just come in and give language and permission to go for it. And, and all I want to say is, you know, you'd say, well, you know, I, now I'm not creative. You know, now so-and-so is creative, but I'm not a creative. You're not the first person that's ever lied to yourself about that. But hear, hear this. You may not be artsy, but you're creative. You were created to create. Access the options that God would speak to your life and to your heart. And you watch your creativity come alive. And what if you're carrying one verse, one song, one, one word, one, one piece of woodwork, one piece of art that's a carrying, carrying a grace and anointing that people look at that piece of your creativity and receive their healing. That's the way God... That's, are, you, are you the girl that played violin last night? Okay. I'll end with this. Psalm 33 that we never got to last night or today. <laughs> it says, sing unto the Lord a new song. And that's what I'm speaking over your life. Yeah. Sing unto the Lord a new song. A new song, new is the word kadash, which means to rebuild, renew, repair, and restore. What you're really created to sing the word sing is not as in, oh, 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 that ain't sing. Bible, that's not singing. You know what sing is? It's the word shira. And shira, there's two words for sing, shira and, and, and renah. And when the people of God would sing at the gate of Zion, it was renah. It was as screech a praise, like the, a thou, like, imagine, 38,000 at the gate of Zion screeching like eagles and releasing a shout over the city and over the Kidron Valley. And every enemy that would be coming to attack God's people, when they would hear that shout coming up from the gate of Zion, they would all say, we can't touch them. God is in their midst. And for 33 years, same length of Jesus' life and the same length that the tabernacle of David for 33 years not one enemy was able to invade in that generation because of the, everybody had their song and they had their sound. And it says, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing. Is, that place there is the word shira, which means to walk about as a strolling minstrel playing the sound of who you are. That's the word sing. And uh, whether it be a harp, whether it be the violin, or whether it be art, whether it be literature, whether it be poetry, whether it be screenwriting, where are the novelists in this room that have been afraid to pick up the pen? Because you know, other people far away, more gifted than I do, do that. 
Where would I get a publishing deal? You hear that? Write. You just write what you see. Sing what you hear. Be who you're created to be. Step out of the ranks of everybody. God's looking for those that will step out and into the ranks of the ridiculous is what God's looking for. The ones that are easily ridiculed. Look how easy David was ridiculed. Well, go ahead and be ridiculous with your phrase. Go ahead and be ridiculous with your creativity. There are people in this room that have the ability to make blankets that will carry healing. Make quilts that will carry healing. Art that will carry Flower arrangements that will release so much life that the aroma of God will fill houses because that's, that's what we're after is, is God doing the outrageous, outlandish, bizarre expression of who he is. Lord, I pray right now that in this room that you would immerse us and baptize people in this room with godly aspirations. And Lord, I declare right now that we'll never ever agree with the fleshly ambition of those that roll in the self Wallow in self or roll in the dust. We're, but Lord, I declare right now, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say this. You were, never, you were never born to fit in. You, you were not supposed to fit in. You were not supposed to fit in. You were, never, you were not created to fit in. If David had fit in, he would have joined the ranks up there on the hill and no giant would have ever fallen. So we, I declare right now a Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit release of a misfit anointing upon this whole re- region. In Jesus' name. Lord, we distance ourselves from our own unrealistic expectation and man's expectation. We distance ourselves from this right now in Jesus' name. We, and we declare right now, Lord, that we, we find that God's people did, you know what? God's people did not have a voice until they found their song. And so, Lord, I speak that up to people that may think they don't have a voice in the earth that are in this room. Lord, I pray that even now that they will, they will find their song in the night that awakens the day and awakens the day of a new dawning of who they're created to be. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In the, in, in the beloved name. In the beloved name of Jesus. Yes, the one that walked out through the crowd. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Lord, I ask for a grace of well-pleasedness. May, may, may we know how well-pleased you are with who you've created us to be. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, we, uh, we anoint this house to, to, as a place to, or those that are born to stand out. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Lord, make us be the Davids that rise early. Lord, may we rise in the morning. And lay down, lay down what has encumbered us. May we rise in the morning. Leaving behind the things that contained us. We step out of where we used to fit. Lord, we pray, I pray, I don't know if this is a word y'all use over here, but I keep seeing this. I, I just pray, Lord, that you would cause your grace to outfit us. Just outfit us. 
Lord, this is, this is a coming out of the desert. This is a coming out of a man's expectation. We're distancing ourselves from the very things that held us captive in our yesterdays.